0: In this uh, new podcast segment, I am going to start to just read out the chapters that are important from the book India After Gandhi by Ramchandra Guha. Some of the website has suggested this for as it's very important for the competition point of view. So I would be starting with chapter 6, Ideas of India. With 395 articles and 12 schedules, the Constitution of India is probably the longest in the world. Coming into effect in January 1950, it was framed over a period of three years between December 1946 and December 1949. During this time, its drafts were discussed clause by clause in the Constituent Assembly of India in all the assembly held 11 sessions whose sittings consumed 165 days in between the session the work of revising and refining the drafts were carried out by various committees and subcommittees the procedure of constituent assembly of india was printed in 11 bulky volumes these volumes some of which exceed 1000 pages are tes- a testimony to loquaciousness of India, but also to the insight, intelligence, passion, and sense of humor. These volumes are little-known treasure trove, invaluable to the historian, but also a potential source of enlightenment to the interested citizens. In them we find many competing ideas of the nation, of what language it should speak, what political and economic system it should follow, what moral values it should uphold. From the early 1930s, Congress has insisted that Indians would frame their own constitution. In 1946, Lord Babel finally gave into the demand. The members of the assembly were chosen on basis of that year's provincial election. However, The Muslim League chose to boycott the early sittings, making an effective one-party forum. The first meeting of Constituent Assembly was held on 9 December 1946. A sense of anticipation was in the air. The leading Congress members, such as Nehru and Patel, sat on the front benches. But to demonstrate that it it was not merely a Congress party show, Noon opponents such as Sarat Bose of Bengal was given seat alongside them. A nationalist newspaper noted that nine women members were present, adding color to scene of dominated by Gandhi caps and Nehru jackets. Apart from the members sent by provinces of British India, the Constituent Assembly also had representatives of the princely state, sent as these states joined the union one by one. 82% of the Assembly members were also the members of the Congress. However, since the party was itself a broad church, they held a wide range of views. Some were atheist and secularist, others technically members of the Congress, but spiritually members of the RSS and the Hindu Mahasabha. Some were socialist in the economic philosophy, other defenders of the right of landlords. Aside from the diversity within it, the Congress also nominated independent members of different castes and religious groups and ensured the representation of women and particularly sought out experts in the law. In the event there were hardly any shade of public opinion not represented by the Assembly. The expansion of the social base of the Assembly was in part an answer to British criticism. Winston Churchill, in particular, had poured scorn on the idea of constituent assembly dominated by one major community in India, the caste Hindus. In his view, of Congress was not truly a representative party, but rather a mouthpiece of actively organized and engineered minorities who have seized upon powers by force of fraud go forward and use the power in name of vast masses with whom they have long since lost all effective connection. The process was made more participatory by asking for submission from public at large. There were hundreds of responses, a sampling of which gives a clue to interest the lawmakers had to make account of. This All India, Varnashiram Swarajasang, based in Kolkata, asked that the constitution be based on the principles laid down in the ancient Hindu works. The prohibition of cow cow slaughter and the closing down of abitators were particularly recommended. Low-class groups demanded an end to the ill-treatment by upper-caste people and reservation of separate seats on the basis of the population in legislature, government departments and local bodies, etc. Linguistic minorities asked for freedom of speech in the mother tongue and the redistribution of provinces on linguistic basis. Religious minorities asked for safeguards and bodies as varied. The District Teacher Guild of Vizinagaram and the Central Jewish Board of Bombay requested etiquette representation on all public bodies, including legislature, etc., The submission testified to the baffling heterogeneity of India, but also to the precious existence of right culture among Indians. There were many, they were divided, above all, they were vocal. The constitution of India had to adjudicate among thousands of competing claims and demands. The task was made no easier by turmoil of times. The assembly met between 1946 and 1949 against a backdrop of food scarcity, religious riots, refugee resettlement, class war and feudal intransigence. As one historian of the process has put it, Fundamental rights were to be framed amidst the carnage of fundamental wrongs. The Constituent Assembly has more than 300 members. In this magisterial history of Indian constitution, Granville Austin identifies 20 as being the most influential. On these, as many as 12 had law degrees, including Congress, stalwarts Jawaharlal Nehru, Walla Bhai Patel and Rajendra Prashad. Nehru's first major speech in assembly was on 13 December 1946, when he moved the objective resolution. uh, This proclaimed India as an independent, sovereign republic, guaranteeing to its citizens justice, social, economical and political, equality of status, of opportunity and before the law, freedom of thought, expression, belief, faith, worship vocation, association, and action subject to law and public morality. All this while assuring the etiquette safeguard shall provide for minority backward and tribal areas and depressed and the other backward class. In moving the resolution, Nehru invoked the spirit of Gandhi and the great past of India as well as modern precedents such as the French-American and Russian Revolution. Nine months later, Nehru spoke again in Columned Hall at the night, midnight hour when he asked India to redeem the tryst with destiny. In between 22 July 1947, he moved a resolution proposing the national flag of India to be horizontal tricolour of saffron white and dark green in equal proportion with a wheel in navy blue at the centre. On this occasion, Nehru led a chorus of com- competitive patriotism, which each subsequent speaker, seeking to see in the colours of the flag something special about its own community's contribution to India, the speeches of the symbolic importance were naturally made by Nehru. Just naturally, the bulk of backroom work was done by Vallabhai Patel, a consummate committee man. He played a key role in drafting the various reports it was patel rather than the less patient nehru who worked at mediating between warring groups taking recalcitrant members with them on his morning walks and making them see the larger point of view it was also patel who moved on the more continuous resolution the penetrating Pertaining into minority rights, the third Congress Member of importance was President of the Assembly, Rajendra Prasad. He was nominated to the office on the day after the assembly was inaugurated and held it with dignity until the end of its term. He was an un- unviable task for Indians and better speaker and than listener, an Indian politician especially so. Prasad has to keep the peace between quarrelsome members and keep the the clockmen who sometimes had little sense of what was trifling and what significant. Outside the Congress unity, most crucial members of the assembly was brilliant low-caste lawyer B.R. Ambedkar. Ambedkar was law minister in Union Government and also chairman of the drafting community of the Indian Constitution. Serving with him were two other formidable minds, K.M. Munshi, Gujarati Pali who was a novelist and lawyer and a well freedom fighter and aladi krishna swami ayer a tamil who for 15 years had served the advocate general to madras presidency to these six men one must add a seventh who's not a member to the assembly at all This was B.N. Rao, who served as the constitutional advisor to the government of India in a long career in the Indian civil service. Rao had a series of legal appointments. Using his learning and experience, the following a fresh study tour of Western democracies, Rao prepared a series of notes for Ambedkar and his team to chew upon. Rao in turn was assisted by chief Draughtsman S.N. Mukherjee, whose ability to put the most in Intricate proposal in the simplest and clearest legal form can rarely be equaled. Moral visions, political skill, legal acumen. These were all brought together in the framing of the Indian constitution. This was a coming together of what Granville Austin has called national and social revolutions respectively. The national revolution focused on democracy and liberty which the experience of colonial rule had denied to all Indians, whereas the social revolution focused on emancipation and equality, which tradition and scriptures had withheld from women and low caste. Could these twin revolutions be brought about by indigenous method? Some advocated the Gandhian constitution based on Revived Panchayatras system of village council, with the village as the basic unit of politics and governance. This was sharply attacked by B. R. Ambedkar, who held that these villages republic This was sharply attacked by B. R. Ambedkar, who held that these village republics have been the. Ruination of India Ambedkar was surprised that those who condemn provincialism and communalism should come forward as champions of village. What is the village but a sink of localism, a den of ignorance, narrow-mindedness, and communalism? The remark provoked outrage in some quarters. The socialist Ejvi Kamath dismissed Ambedkar's attitude as typical of the urban highbrow. The peasant leader N.G. Ranga said that Ambedkar's comments only showed his ignorance of Indian history. All the democratic tradition of a country has been lost on him. If he had only known the achievements of village panchayats in southern India over a period of a millennium, he would not have said those things. However, the feisty female members of the United Province, Begum Aziza Rasool, entirely agreed with Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, as she saw it, the modern tendency is towards the rights of the citizen as against any corporate body, and village panchayats can be very autocratic. Ultimately, it was the individual rather than the village that was chosen as the unit. In other respects, too, the constitution was to look towards Euro-American Rather than Indian precedent, the American presidential system was considered and rejected, as saw the Swiss method of directing electing cabinet members. Several members argued for proportional representation, but this was never taken very seriously. Another former British colony, Ireland had adopted p r but when the constitutional adviser Bien Rao visited Dublin. G. Valera himself told him that he wished the Irish adopted the British first-past-the-post system of election and the British cabinet system. This, he felt, made a strong government in India, where the number of competing interest groups was immeasurably large, and made even more sense to follow British model. The lower house of the parliament as well as the lower house of the provinces were to be chosen on the basis of universal edit franchise. After much discussion, parliament as well as the most provinces decided also to have second chamber to act as a check on the excess of democratic zeal. Its members were chosen through indirect election in the, upper, in the case of upper house of parliament by state legislature. While the cabinet was headed by prime minister, the head of state was president, elected by the college, comprising of the national and the provincial legislature. The president would be commander-in-chief of the armed forces and has the power to refer bills back to the parliament. This was a position of great authority and dignity. But like those of British monarch, one with no real power, in the provinces a governor nominated by centre, central government was coming to be known played a role comparable to the president. The Constitution provided for the independent election commission and independent comptroller general of accounts to protect the judiciary from party politics, judges which were appointed by the President in consideration with the Chief Justice while salaries were not decided by the Parliament but charged directly to the Treasury. The Supreme Court in Delhi was seen both as the guardian of the social revolution and as a guarantor of the civil and minority right. It was Endowed with broad appellate jurisdiction, any civil or criminal cases could be referred to it, so long as it involved an interpretation of the Constitution. The Constitution mandate for a complex system of fiscal de- federalism, in the case of some taxes, the Centre retained all the proceeds, in other cases it shared them with the States. It In still other cases, it assigned them wholly to the states. The states, meanwhile, could levite and collect certain taxes on their own. These included land and property taxes, sale tax, and a hugely profitable tax on bottled liquor. The financial provisions borrowed heavily from the Government of India Act 1935, the consciousness of the Constitution. Meanwhile, was contained in Part 3 and 4, which outlined a series of fundamental rights and directive ah. principles.